Genesis 25, we won't read the first 18 verses and close your Bibles and put them away and never look at them again. You're going to need them. Uh, It's going to borderline be a bit of a sword drill um, because we want to see what all of Scripture has uh, to say about this passage and uh, this passage in our own lives. Uh, Let me ask, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, So if you are able, let me ask that you uh, do that now. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Not really sure why some of you haven't named your kids any of these things. Uh, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. Uh, There's still the future. Uh, The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Apher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward, to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would uh, use this, your word, uh, to uh, strengthen our faith, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Sometimes reading uh, the book of Genesis can be a little bit like uh, a walk in my neighborhood. Um, we've discovered, I just dropped the cat. Uh, this is a problem. Um, see, there's no place, there's no shelf for this. Just about to sit here now and be a distraction for everybody. Uh, see, walking in my neighborhood, um, none of y'all get to do this. Uh, only a few of us in this room ever do this. Um, our neighborhood's really, Eastbrook's one street. 
It's really one main road, and then off of it are several cul-de-sacs, little short uh, roads that sort of stick off this way, and then, then further back stick off that way and stick off that way. Our street might be the exception because it sticks off, it goes farther, and then there's a, a cul-de-sac off of that. But sometimes reading Genesis can be a little bit like taking a walk in my neighborhood. You, you take a turn, And you realize the end of this road is right here. This is not the longest of streets. There's the cul-de-sac. Why am I even bothering? But yet you walk down it just a little further only to turn around and come right back and be right back on the main road all over again. Reading Genesis can be a lot like that. In some ways, we run across these genealogies. And they feel like they feel like they get in the way. They feel like just a little short walk down some side street, only to then return again to the main road, the main street of the neighborhood. And in many ways, that's what they are. These aren't the 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 main threads, the main story of Genesis. These aren't, quite honestly, the main characters of the book of Genesis, or for that matter, anywhere else in the Bible. And yet we have these genealogies. And and you have to admit, if you were reading the Bible alone, if you were doing your reading through the Bible in a year plan, whatever, whatever system you have, if you were reading the Bible, you'd skip them, wouldn't you? You'd be really tempted just to go, well, this is the genealogy of Keturah. I don't know any of these names. I can't pronounce any of these names. Why should I even bother trying? Because I know that in just a second I'm going to turn right back around and be right back here on the main street, the main genealogy, the main thread. Well, the the main thread comes back in verse 19. But let me remind you what Timothy, what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy Three, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's all useful and profitable for us. But these are genealogies. Genealogies of people that don't matter. Can that really mean anything to me? Take a walk down this little side street with me. You notice in verse 1, Abraham remarries. Sarah has, has died. And Abraham takes another wife, Keturah. And she, they have uh, sons together. Six sons named there in that list. There may have been daughters. It's not uncommon for daughters to be omitted from uh, genealogies. That's not to say these were their only six kids. It just means these were the six sons they had. There may have been daughters as well. And you and I read the list and think, these names mean almost nothing to me. But they would have meant something to the original audience. Remember, remember Moses is writing Genesis to Israelites that are somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. And you think, well, wait, why, why were they in Egypt? What were they doing there? What, was the, what, what are they leaving Egypt for? Remember, they were slaves there. They had been in slavery in Egypt for generations. And you look at this list and you think, well, I don't recognize any of these names. What could they possibly have meant to Moses and his original audience, the Israelites 
en route to the promised land. Turn over to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Verse 23. Joseph has his dreams. He tells his brothers about his dreams. That was mistake number one. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Hey, these are our cousins. These are our people. Uh, and, and coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. Wait a minute, Midian? That's one of Keturah's kids. These are all descendants of Abraham. So, so Abraham's line through his great-grandsons through Sarah are selling one of their brothers to their distant cousins who then take Joseph down to Egypt and eventually end up there in slavery. As Moses writes... Genesis, he's writing to people going, wait, we were in Egypt in slavery. Why? Because of Midian. Because of Midian's descendants. This name matters to the Israelites. Turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2 verse 15. Moses flees, well, verse 16, Moses flees from Pharaoh, stays in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, uh, verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why would you leave him? Why didn't you bring him back here? Let's feed him. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Moses is married to a Midianite. So the, the name matters to Moses and to now, the people of Israel, as they're making this trek from Egypt to the promised land. And you'll notice over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the, the Midianites, this, these descendants of Abraham and Keturah, keep showing up. And then back in verse 12 of Genesis 25, there are there's another genealogy, another list. Keturah had... Six sons for Abraham. Ishmael has twelve grandsons for Abraham. Do you see it? 
Genealogies are evidence. Genealogies are proof. See, if you wanted to join, I don't know, the Daughters of the American Revolution, if you wanted to join some certain cultures and societies in this world, you have to be able to show up with the papers proving you belong there. Genealogies are proof. They're evidence of of what has gone before you. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. Let me remind you of what these genealogies prove. You'll probably want to keep a a finger in Genesis 15. Uh, We'll flip back and forth a couple of times along the way. Genesis 15 verse 5. God takes Abraham outside. He says, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able. Count the stars in the sky. Oh wait. You, you know. Okay, maybe if you stood in the middle of the square on a full moon night, you could count every star you see. But go stand on a mountain in Colorado on a new moon night. Count them. If you get past 20 without losing your place, that's impressive. Go outside and count the stars. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Remember, God has promised descendants galore to Abraham. And these genealogies prove that God is doing exactly what He said He would do. These genealogies are evidence that, oh look... Abraham really is having children and grandchildren. And in a couple of lines, great-grandchildren are mentioned. They're evidence. They're proof that God is doing exactly what God said He would do. Now let me warn you. Some of you, probably many of you teenagers thinking this, this, this is how teenager brains work, But some of you are thinking to yourself, wait a minute. If Ishmael and his twelve sons are fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he'll have children, descendants, like the stars in the sky, that means that what Abraham did with Hagar really isn't sin after all. See, that makes Abraham's sham sort of marriage, his adultery with Hagar, Sarah's servant, that that makes it okay because look, they had children and that fulfills God. It doesn't work that way. See, our twisted minds will want to say, well, wait a minute, if God uses the consequences of my sin, even for my good and for His glory, that means my sin, it's not really so bad, is it? That kind of makes that sin okay. Well, But something good came out of it, so it really wasn't that bad. It must not have been sin at all because it, it accomplishes God's Purposes. These kids, these children and grandchildren, don't justify Abraham's sin of adultery. It's still adultery. It was still wrong. It's still a violation of God's clear commands and will for His people. 
Don't let the, the good consequences cloud your judgment. That doesn't make sin right. In fact, Calvin argues, I think it was Calvin, now that I've said that out loud, I'm doubting myself. I think it was Calvin who, who argues, who questions at least the wisdom of remarrying at all. You have Isaac. You have the son of the promise. Why Keturah? Why more children? That doesn't make any sense in Calvin's mind. So let me, let me guard against the notion that all these children means that, well... That Abraham's sin with with Hagar really wasn't sin after all. That's not the case at all. And yet, God is fulfilling His promises. God is showing Abraham just a a foretaste, just a a sampling. These are the generations, these are the children that you're going to have. These are the descendants. Remember I told you, I promised you, descendants like the stars in the sky, like the dust of the earth... Well, and, and here, at, at his death, he has eight sons. There are, are twelve grandsons listed under Ishmael's line. A couple of others through Keturah. God's fulfilling His promises. But children, that's not the only promise that God gave to Abraham. Turn back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, uh, verse, uh, verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. Wait, wait, wait. That, that phrase sounds familiar. I think, I've, I think I've heard that phrase before. Because notice verse 8 of chapter 25. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. The exact same phrase is used. In other words, when you read Genesis 25.8, you should be thinking, wait, 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 this is familiar. I've heard this phrase before because the exact same phrase was the promise made to Abraham. You will live a long life. You will die in peace, which clearly he does. Full of days, full of years, really an indication of, of satisfaction and joy. God is making His Word. God is making His promises come true. The things that He promised to Abraham a hundred years ago. This is a promise a hundred years in the making. You and I don't want to wait a hundred minutes. Preferably not a hundred seconds. And it's a hundred years in the making. He was 75 when he was called from his family. And he dies at 175. Peace at a good old age. God is bringing his promises to fruition. But notice, Abraham doesn't actually get to experience all of it. I mean, eight sons is, is pretty good. That's more than most of us. And yet it's just a sampling. It's just a foretaste. 
He never actually owned, he never actually inherited the promised land. He had a, he had a field with a cave. He had a burial. He had a graveyard. He has a field with a cave in it that serves as his family burial plot. Eight sons. I mean, that's not bad, but that's not stars in the sky. That's not dust of the earth. That's not dust on this carpet in this room, much less dust of the earth. That's not stars that you can see on a bright... That's much less stars in the sky. Abraham only gets a a, a sampling, a, a foretaste of what's to come. And yet, he looks in faith to the fulfillment of those promises. He sees it. He gets a glimpse of it. Purchasing land for a burial plot for his wife, Sarah, that he too is buried in by Isaac and Ishmael. Growing number of descendants. Living a long, healthy, happy life. Dying in peace. He, he gets samplings of those promises, but he doesn't see the final fulfillment, yet he looks in faith to their fulfillment. Because notice what he did in verses 5 and 6. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac toward eastward to the east country. He leaves everything to Isaac. Isaac doesn't get an eighth. Isaac doesn't get two ninths if he were to get a double portion of of what... He got everything. The others got gifts. The other seven, they got gifts. They got something from Abraham. But Isaac gets everything. You know, there's a pattern in Genesis. You know, you go to a play, and at the end of the play, they have the curtain call, where all the the cast of characters come back out again. and, And they come out in order of... Importance. If you have the, the tiniest bit part in the play, you're the first one out. Uh, you're in that first group. And if you're the main character, you're the last one out. And you can listen. If you're, in, if you're sitting there in the aisle, you can hear the, the applause sort of crescendo there. What if you went to a play and the curtain call came before the play instead of after it? What if instead of telling you who had the biggest part, what if instead it introduced you to the characters and told you who was going to have the biggest part? So that, so that they came out before the play and then, and then clear the stage and leave the stage for the main character. That's the way Moses writes Genesis. You'll notice verse... 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. That's the heading that introduces a new section of Genesis every time. You see it back in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, you see it right here in verse 12. But his section is only six, seven verses long because we see it again in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. That's the heading that says, here's the next major section of Genesis. What Moses does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is introduce people, characters, participants in 
the book of Genesis and then clears them out of the way so that the main character can take the spotlight, can take center stage. This genealogy through Keturah is cleared out of the way. The genealogy of Ishmael is cleared out of the way such that actually Ishmael's life and death, his kids and his death in verse 17 all sort of conclude right there. And it's, it's get him out of the way. Why? Because Isaac is the main character. Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the one through whom the promised offspring of the woman back in Genesis 3 will come. And so Moses writes, he gives you the curtain call on the front end and then clears the the bit part characters out of the way and clears the stage for the one who is the main character, the son of promise. Keturah's kids, Ishmael, they get gifts. Abraham gives them things. They are his sons. They're his children. They're his descendants. He loves them. But then he sends them out of the way and he gives everything to Isaac. He's saying to the world and to Isaac himself, you're the son of the promise. You're the one that Genesis 3 even talks about. Through whom the seed of the woman who will crush the the head of the serpent will come. And notice he sends them all away. He doesn't send them away from the land. He doesn't send them away from himself. He sends them away from Isaac. He's doing everything he can to protect the promised seed. He's doing everything he can to protect the future of those generations, of the ones promised to deliver God's people. Abraham blesses his son Isaac. That blessing only says, it only speaks of Abraham's faith. It it only speaks of the promise made to Abraham over the last hundred years. Abraham blessing Isaac doesn't make the promise come true. Verse 11 does. Because there, after Abraham dies, God blesses Isaac. That's the blessing that ensures that the genealogy will live on, that the seed of the woman will come from Isaac. Two genealogies, two side streets, if you will, off of the main road, but two genealogies that remind us that God is at work doing exactly what He has said He would do. Let me make six. Yes, you heard that right. Six applications from this passage. The first is this. You can't, and this for many is a difficult pill to swallow. You can't miss the doctrine of election in the book of Genesis. Eight sons, one of them, 
receives everything. Eight sons Abraham has, and only one of them is the son of the promise. Eight sons for father Abraham, and yet only one of them receives God's blessing and care and protection in a way that ensures the line continues. Only one will bring about the the promised seed of the woman. One chosen, the other seven rejected. In fact, we're going to see that in the very next passage. One chosen, one rejected. It's a theme over and over again. And never on the basis of the people. Never on on the basis of Isaac's obedience and Ishmael's failure. Even before they're born. Even before Jacob and Esau are, are born. We have the promise. One chosen. One rejected. You can't miss the doctrine of election in the book of Genesis. A second application connected to that a little bit. Here's the oddity of parenting. As parents, we do everything we can to ensure that God's promises and blessings are passed on to future generations. But we can't pass them on ourselves. We do everything we can to ensure that those promises and blessings are passed on to our children and to our children's children. Abraham made sure to protect the promise to Isaac. Okay, that doesn't, you, you don't get to pick a child and send all the others away, right? You're not, you don't get to say, well, I'm going to pick my favorite and then get rid of all the rest of them, right? That, that's not the way it works in the New Testament. We baptize them, we introduce them to the covenant community, we teach them the doctrines of our holy religion, we, we talk about sin and forgiveness in Christ. We do all that we can to ensure that God's program of blessing continues to the next generation, but we are completely dependent on verse 11. That God would bless our children. We can't force it. We can't guarantee it. We can foster it. And then we are driven to pray for God to bless our children. A third application, also closely related to that one, We live by faith, looking to the future. In many ways, that's what parenting is, right? I mean, in, 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 in many ways, you're raising up children for a world that you may never see. For a world that you won't be around, that you won't live long enough to experience. The world around us would tell you, You need to live, you know, seize the day. You need to live for right here, right now. In fact, there are many so-called Christian preachers out there who would tell you you can have your best life now. We, however, look not so much to the present as to the future. The world around you would tell you, look out for yourself Enjoy today because, you know, eat, drink, be merry because tomorrow you die and that's all that there is. But as believers, as Christians, we're always living in light of, of worlds to come. Both the future of this one, and that's why we raise up a, a godly seed after us, 
and looking to the future return of Christ. We're looking for His work to continue in this world until He comes back. Living by faith means looking to future blessings for future generations, not just to our own. We see that so evident in Abraham's life. He got just a taste, just a a sampling. It's it's an hors d'oeuvre. A little small plot of land with a cave on it to bury his wife and himself. Eight sons. How many grandsons were mentioned? 14, 15 grandsons mentioned in this passage. It's, a, it's, a, it's an hors d'oeuvre. It's, it's just a, a sampling, a taste of, of what's to come. We live looking to the future of God's work. Your best life now is far more selfish than the Bible ever lets us be. Oh, that we might live for future generations and their blessing. A fourth application. Death comes to everyone. Unless Christ returns, death comes to everyone. But death never gets the last word. This, by the way, will be a much bigger deal next Sunday, right? As we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together, this is going to be a much bigger deal next Sunday, but you get a sampling, you get an hors d'oeuvre right here in Genesis 25. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus answers the Sadducees. They come to Him with a story. A man marries a woman. They don't have kids. He dies. His brother marries her to fulfill the the Leverite law. He dies before they have kids. Seven brothers, one woman, and none of them ever had kids. And so their question is, in in the life to come, in the new heavens and new earth, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? They're trying to trick her. And, and Jesus appeals to Moses in Exodus 3 and says, In Exodus 3, Moses writes that God said to him from the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time Moses encountered the burning bush, Abraham had been dead centuries Why would God say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if Abraham's dead? Because you see, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. It must be the case that Abraham isn't actually dead. Oh, his body's buried in a cave. Absolutely, Isaac and Ishmael aren't confused. They literally took his body and they put it in his cave next to his wife, Sarah, But notice what this passage says. Verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age and uh, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. That doesn't mean he was put in the tomb of the family burial plot. That's where his body is. But his soul passed immediately into God's presence. That's your hope. All who die in Christ, that is your hope. Yeah, we may put your body in the ground. And it may spend 
centuries there for all we know. But death doesn't get the last word. Because because your soul as a believer in Christ goes straight to eternity. Straight to God's presence. And waits for that body to come back up out of the ground. And be reunited, remade, recreated to live in the new heavens and the new earth. A fifth application Paul writes in Galatians 3 that it's through Isaac that the true offspring of Abraham comes. The true seed of Abraham. And that is Christ. That is Jesus. That is the promised Messiah. The one who would come and and literally crush the head of the serpent and deliver us from bondage to sin. Yeah, there are other genealogies, other little side streets, other cul-de-sacs along the way. But Isaac becomes the main character because it's through him that the Messiah comes. Christ is the main character of Scripture. Christ is the, the, the main feature of the Bible. And so these other genealogies clear the way, not so much for Isaac, but for the one through Isaac, the one who would come through Isaac. Look to him in faith. Be delivered from sin. Finally, you really want to ask, what of Ishmael? What of these Six sons of Keturah. What came of them? What about them? Does this mean that Ishmael was lost forever? We have no idea if Ishmael ever turned in faith to God. What about his descendants? What about their future? What about what they're up against? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. While you're turning to Isaiah 60, I know I have time to do this because it'll take you a minute to find Isaiah 60. Isaiah, in many ways, mirrors the whole Bible. 66 chapters, just as there are 66 books in the Bible. 39 of of doom and gloom and woe and, and fear and danger. And then 27 of, well, there are those who call Isaiah the fifth gospel. Uh, you'll, you'll find uh, ancient Puritans who talked about the gospel according to Isaiah because in many ways that's what his book uh, is for us. Isaiah chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord, Yahweh, will arise upon you and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall, come, shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall come and bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar 
shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Do you see what Isaiah sees? Do you see what he pictures? He pictures a day when the very people that Abraham sent away come home. He sees a day when all those those non-Isaacites who have gone and been sent away now come back. Isn't that your hope? You're not a descendant of Isaac. You're not not Jewish by birth. You don't trace your, your ancestry through Isaac. Your hope is that you too have have responded in faith to Christ. Isaac's true descendant, Isaac's true offspring, the one who crushed the serpent's head so that you wouldn't have to. And you're a beneficiary of this promise from Isaiah 60 that those whom Abraham sent away, these very names are listed in Genesis 25. But here, they're coming back. They're coming to Christ. You know, it's, we're told not just that Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, but that you and I are. That all who look to Christ by faith are Abraham's offspring. Abraham went outside and counted stars, if he could number them. They bore your name. Be encouraged by that. Be comforted by that. Because you are part of that offspring, that great multitude of descendants from Abraham. Let's pray together.